Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. What are we to make of the temple envisioned by Ezekiel? How can we better understand Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48? One way, suggests Tova Gonzal, is by examining evidence from Babylonian sources. She argues that Neo-Babylonian temples provide a meaningful backdrop against which many unique features of Ezekiel's vision should be interpreted. Tune in as we speak with Tova Gonzal about her recent book, Ezekiel's Visionary Temple in Babylonian Context. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Dr. Tova Gonzal received her PhD from the Department of Bible in Bar-Ilan and has published widely on prophetic literature in the context of the larger ancient Near Eastern world. Tova, welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thanks for inviting me here again. It's always exciting. So again, this is your second episode with us, and you introduced yourself a bit before, but what else can you tell us about yourself? Does your family enjoy the book of Ezekiel as much as you do? And what would you say is your next favorite book of the Bible, perhaps after Ezekiel? Well, uh, you asked two different questions. The first question was about my family. So I would say that I think they don't have any, they're not engaged with Ezekiel in any way. Um, I don't even know which of my children know exactly what the text of Ezekiel says. Probably some to a certain extent, but it would be an interesting uh, thing for me to find an opportunity to check out in an indirect way if I want a direct answer. And um, with regarding to what would be the second favorite book, it probably, I don't know, I'm now in, I'm engaged with Ezra and Nehemiah, and I feel that they're... Uh, very interesting and that they are challenging in different ways too. So maybe that would be my answer. But it's sometimes I feel connection to rabbinic texts or to um, Hebrew literature texts. It's not all about Bible. So, What prompted you to look at Babylonian sources for understanding Ezekiel's temple vision? Um, I think that's an excellent question. I think, um, you know, I'm actually an Orthodox Jew which means that I pray more than once a day. And uh, we always have these texts in our praying that deal with uh, a future Jerusalem, a future dwelling of God in Jerusalem and in the temple. And, you know, clears to mind, what is that sacred space that we're talking about and we kind of make a daily mention of and kind of bypass it. So I think years ago when I was trying to figure out what exactly am I praying about or saying or what should I be imagining when I say these passages, um, that's I think what got me started. Um, you know, times passed and I've gone a long way, but you are asking where my starting point was. I think it was probably two or three decades ago when I was just first, you know, trying to figure out what exactly is this that I'm devoting time to every day. Um, but then once I became an academic and I started, uh, I guess, learning more biblical texts and I started uh, learning the book of Ezekiel and it was after my doctorate. My doctorate really 
does not deal with these nine chapters at all. If you would look back at the document that I finished in 2005, when I worked on the concept of holiness in the book of Ezekiel, um, it always, uh, it, goes, it goes through many chapters in the book, but basically it doesn't reach the te visionary temple, which was kind of um, situated already then in the scholarship as a separate unit. So I didn't really reach to it. And then once after I finished and I started looking at these chapters, I saw that um, it's very interesting because there are many elements in this temple vision that actually lack biblical parallels. And I think trying to understand where they come from um, and how should we understand why there are these differences and if and why they're significant was what really brought me to ask about the Babylonian backdrop. Could you give us any example of how similarities with Babylonian temples help explain features of the temple in Ezekiel? Um, yeah, I guess I can, but I, maybe I'll start with um, actually one thing that, that uh, dem well demonstrates uh, that these chapters are so unique and that's the reason you really have to go on looking for a different context to kind of understand it. And that is that when we read the prophetic literature, we're used to seeing a certain model of leadership. We're used to seeing, at least in the first temple time, we're used to seeing a king, we're used to seeing a prophet, a high priest. Um, and then you reach these chapters in Ezekiel and there's no king and there's no mention of a high priest. Um, if the only prophet that we acknowledge is Ezekiel himself. And instead, we have a whole bunch of different roles. One of them is the Nasi, which is a very dominant figure. The name Nasi is a name that we already know from the biblical texts, but we've never really met him uh, with a job description that fits the way that Ezekiel puts him. So to respond to your question, I think that actually looking for a temple administrator that's not a king um, is a good example of something that we see in the Neo-Babylonian temples, but also in the temples in the first millennium in general, but specifically the Neo-Babylonian time, um, where you really can see there's a temple administrator that is not a priest, and Ezekiel's Nasi is not a priest. Um, and he really has a lot of the, uh, I would say, responsibility for maintaining the rituals, the sacrifices, um, making sure that everything that has to be taken care of in the temple uh, is really carried out. Um, another example that we can see is really looking at Ezekiel's visionary temple. We can see that this is the someone who's very familiar with the functioning temple. Um, the many chambers, details in many different ways. And when you look at a functioning temple um, and you try to find some kind of parallel, it's hard to understand from the 400 years of the first temple and the 600 years of the second temple. Um, it's hard to find an example besides the, the last years of the second temple that we have more uh, literature on, but it's way post-biblical times. Um, really descriptions that can demonstrate how a building of a temple was built, what details did it need to have, what was definitely included, what could have been included, what was necessary 
for the priests to really be able to carry out their sacrifices and everything included. So I guess personnel would be one answer to your question and the layout of the temple would be another answer to your question. Are there any major differences between Ezekiel's temple and those of Babylon? So I would first say that what's very, very, uh, what's very striking in Ezekiel's uh, temple is what it lacks. Now, every time that I talk about something that the temple's lacking, you can always say, well, it was there, and it's so obvious that it was there that the verses don't mention it. And I actually don't have a good answer for that, meaning um, that's something that we can discuss if, if the verses don't mention something like a menorah. Does that mean that this temple really did not have a menorah? Or does that mean that this was taken for granted, that any Jewish temple must have a menorah and it doesn't have to be mentioned? My personal opinion is that what, that what the verses don't describe is actually missing, especially because the book devotes 63 verses to describe walls and courtyards and gates. And, you know, you wonder if a, if a book can elaborate in such length about gates and courtyards and walls um, to de- basically to describe the building itself, then there must be more to it than just to say, oh, the menorah is taken for granted. That doesn't, you know, it doesn't really work. So wh- this was a brief introduction to the difference that you asked about, because part of what's different is that we're lacking temple vessels. I mean, we have a small altar, we have a table, I would say that's the bare minimum to actually have a sacrifice, right? Someone wants to sacrifice a sacrifice, then without an altar, you can't really do that. And without a table, you can't really do that. So that's why I would call that the bare minimum. But anything else, gold, silver, um, you know, very, uh, I would say, magnifying decorations, things that you expect to have in temples that really usually... All these decorations usually uh, say something about the status of the king and of the god that rules this temple. And the fact that it's all lacking um, is really a very big difference between this Jewish Jerusalem temple and the Babylonian temples. So I would say that's one example. Um, I can give more examples, but I think that the fact that we don't have significant temple vessels. Gold, silver also means that, and here comes the second difference, is that it also means that we don't have people knocking at the doors of the temple. There's not a lot to see. So instead of being a temple that everyone comes to see the decorations and through the uniqueness of the gold and the silver and the whatever it would be, the, the, the vessels or the statues or the decorations or the curtains or whatever it would be, through that really understand how strong, large, and capable the God of this temple is, what we have here is this temple that's really no attraction to anyone. Um, there's obviously a theological reason for that, dif- for that difference, but you didn't ask about that. <laughs> All right, so what's the theological reason for that difference? <laughs> Um, I would say that there there are two ways to look at it. 
one way to look at it is to the look at to look at the Israelites' history and understand that this is really supposed to be um, some kind of repairing or some kind of uh, may I would even call it a new trying to set the stage in a, with a totally different um, criteria for what a temple is, a Jewish temple is because the first one was destroyed. And when God wants to make sure that this temple will really be kept holy and will be significant only as a dwelling, as a place for God's honor to, situ to situate itself, then one of the things that we, uh, we can see is that it has to be kept totally holy. Um, it cannot be impure in any way. And to do so, um, you really build a temple that's not an attraction to anyone. <laughs> so the first theological response to, in my mind would be that this is the way that this temple was, is ensured to be kept holy forever. That's, and, and as an outcome, that when God finally comes into it, he won't leave. That's what the verses tell us. That's really what the verses say. I would add to that also that I think that there is a component here of really differentiating this temple from the Babylonian temples, meaning it's, not, it's like to say, we're not in this race. You know, like when all the temples around there are in this race, I'm bigger, I'm nicer, I'm prettier, I have more silver, I have more gold, I'm taller, I'm higher. I also have a tomb that's uh, built like a temple, and so on and so on. Um, God basically, the Jewish God basically detaches himself and says, I'm not part of this. My glory, uh, my strength, my the recognition of my capabilities do not correspond with how beautiful or big my palace slash temple is. Um, and that's not new theologically because there is no uh, Babylonian or Assyrian temple that claimed to be strong even though his people were defeated. It always went together with, you know, you're strong, you're capable, so you protect your land and you protect your key people. And only uh, the Jewish God says, I'm strong, I'm capable, but my people sinned, so they have to go to exile. Uh, my people sinned, so my land will be empty. That's really a totally new and different theological notion. We're not familiar with that anywhere in the ancient Near Eastern world or in the Mesopotamian concepts of a God. So I would just say that this temple takes these concepts one step further, meaning there's an empty land, even though God is strong. Uh, the temple is destroyed, even though God could have saved it. And once he rebuilt its table, it's plain, even though if he wanted, he could have filled it with gold and silver. So what is the function of the river coming out of the temple in chapter 47? Um, well, here too, I can give different examples. Let's start with the one that's, I think, very concrete. And that is that a person, what even if he gets... Uh, prophecy from God, he obviously um, gives it in words and in terms that people around him are familiar with. And, and uh, Ezekiel is situated in Babylonia, and it's really a place full of rivers. And seeing water that's coming out of temples, um, we're familiar with that from Babylonian temples. Um, some of 
of the our listeners may have heard of the word apshu, which is really this water that springs out of Babylonian temples and has uh, and has theological meanings to it that come with it. Um, so one thing which I started saying was that really he's reacting to what he sees in his Babylonian context, which is people seeing waters coming out of the temple, seeing that water is significant, um, you know, being in contact in in uh, correspondence with Babylonian cities that all contained rivers and flowing springs, and that many of the watercourses in uh, Babylonian uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's times have actually been mapped, and we can even follow and see them today, and we can see the water sources, and it's it's a whole uh, huge issue in the Babylonian. Um, fifth or sixth century BCE. And it's obvious to me that Ezekiel was corresponding with what he saw around him. But I do want to say more than that. I want to say, and this goes uh, one step further on the theological aspect that we talked about before. Um, if you really deny access to the temple from any people who want to come to the temple, um, then you might want to think of an alternative for people to be able to connect this temple or to feel uh, some of its presence around or within them. And I think it's very interesting, the fact that there's actually water that comes out of the temple. Um, and what we see from this water is basically something that I would say enables the people to benefit from the qualities of the temple because the waters come out of the temple and then they flow down till Yamamelach, until the Dead Sea. And they have all these amazing qualities, meaning there's, there's everlasting fruit and trees and healing and all these amazing benefits from these that from if just by sitting next to the stream of water that comes out of the temple. So I think basically what we have here is really uh, twofold. On the one hand, we see a discussion in terms that are recognized and well-known for the people who are familiar who are familiar with Babylonian temples. Um, again, there's uh, a sagila, which is... I would say Marduk built in his temple, um, which is the Marduk's temple is Asagilan. He built, as I said before, uh, the Apshu, the fresh deep waters from the underground. Um, and I think that it was really that he considered it to be the dwelling place of uh, his father, Ia. So, and we can go on and understand the qualifications of the Apshu. But I would just say in a nutshell that when Ezekiel water issues from under the threshold of the temple house, it corresponds with the gate of the Ash, of the Apshu house and the foundation of the platform of heaven and the underworld that it represents. And on the other hand, it's a way to enable the Israelites to connect to the temple, even not invited physically to come in. So... For the exiles in Babylon, what hope would this vision of Ezekiel's temple offer to them? 
Wow, that's a huge question. What what is the significance of this vision? First of all, we have to say explicitly that it was never built. The returnees who came back did not build a temple like Ezekiel. Um, not only did they not build a temple like Ezekiel's, they didn't even build a, a temple that was uh, similar to the first temple. And we see that because in the book, the third chapter of the book of Ezra, we hear that the people that recognized uh, this temple and compared it, or the temple that was going to be built and compared it to the first temple, uh, were crying while others were laughing. So this mixture of laughing and crying actually shows the disappointment when the second temple was being built. And it makes it very clear that it was nothing like uh, Ezekiel's visionary temple. So now we have to ask, what did not only did Ezekiel's visionary temple mean to the Babylonians, it's also what did it mean? Uh, I would say, what was the reception history of this temple? Meaning there are two aspects to it that are to, to, uh, connected. So for the Babylonians around Ezekiel, I actually think that this temple vision was what gave part of what gave them legitimacy to stay in Babylonia and later to be part of the Persian Empire, meaning they were probably ambivalent towards what was happening in Israel, towards the building of the Second Temple, trying to figure out at first if 70 years really passed, which was the prophetic, uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah and noted also in um, Daniel and noted also in Islam for when the Second Temple should be built after the First Temple was destroyed. So first they were asking themselves, did the time come? And once they were convinced the time came, they saw there was no rain and it was very hard to really build the second temple in the such hard circumstances. So I would say this vision actually added to the other uh, reasons that they told themselves, this, what's going on in Israel is not the real thing. We just heard what the real thing looks like. We heard it. You know, 25 years after the temple was destroyed, when Ezekiel gave this visionary um, prophecy, and he described something that looks nothing like what's going on now under uh, Cyrus's declarations, agree, uh, you know, post his declaration, his agreement in Israel. So I would say the first thing would be justification to stay in Babylon. <laughs> the second thing would be, um, since Ezekiel predicted the first temples being destroyed and the destruction of the first temple, when they basically didn't believe him that it would happen, they thought to themselves, oh, we already heard prophets telling us the temple will fall, and it never did. It always stayed. Uh, the days of Sanchariva, the, the famous example for that. So um, in 701 BC. So they really never thought the temple would be really destroyed and, and no one would really be there to uh, to live in Jerusalem with God being there. That wasn't something that they thought would actually, actually materialize, even after they were exiled to Babylonia 12 years before the temple was destroyed. So the fact that Ezekiel had credibility um, and he could say, well, you know, I told you the temple, God left the temple and the temple would be destroyed. And it really happened gave this visionary temple also credibility, meaning now he could tell them, you know, I was right then, I'll be right again here too. Wait to see. Now, they didn't. this didn't happen yet, 
So they didn't see it. But I do think they felt that this is something that's reasonable, might happen, and they should be waiting for, because this prophet already proved himself right once. So that's for the Babylonian, the Judeans that, that exiled Babylonia. But I think that the question you ask is a larger question. We have to ask ourselves, what, what did this visionary temple plan do throughout the 600 years of the second temple? I mean, imagine this. There stood a temple in Jerusalem. Nothing like this vision. Nothing like the first temple. It took, I don't know, four or 500 years until it became even a substantial building. I mean, there's a period of time there that we don't know a lot about. But after the biblical times and before... Uh, we have second temple information and rabbinic texts. But on all I can say that there was never a time that the second temple really was magnificent or substantial or was a central obvious place for Jews all around in diaspora too. We know that there were Jews who stayed in Babylonia and Persia and in Egypt, and we know that they didn't you know, think they have to apologize for not coming. So I think that this visionary plan uh, in Jewish uh, thought was kind of the alternative plan. One day, if this project, current project, the Second Temple building is not working, we have an alternative plan. One day it'll materialize. So uh, I think that's that's why it was so substantial, because it kind of gave... uh, Jews throughout the years of the Second Temple, uh, especially those that were disappointed or frustrated or just didn't feel that what was happening in Israel could have been this real project that God meant to meant to be his recognition in the world, uh, something to hold on to and to say, well, we have a, uh, we have a plan B in the drawer. One day it'll materialize. Now, the holidays look a bit different in Ezekiel's vision than they do in Moses' Torah. So what's going on there? Um, So here's another excellent example of the way that Ezekiel's temple is really different from what we're familiar with. We discussed before the fact that there's really an absence of holy vessels. And I think that the fact that we don't have no hint of an ark of Provim, I mean, we have some Kruvim decorating walls, but no real Kruvim. Uh, we don't have any table for showbread. There's no menorah. Um, all that that is uh, explicitly lacking, I say anything explicit is lacking, really has to do later with what we can say about the holidays. Because, you know, part of what we do on a Yom Kippur, according to custom, if we would understand it from what was expected in the rabbinic literature and what was described in the first temple, was going into the Holy of Holiness, doing certain you know rituals that have to do with vessels that were actually situated within the temple. So the first thing I want to say is that when you have very few vessels in the temple, you know, the holiday rituals cannot be the same because... You know, you, there's just not the same infrastructure to really carry out the same ritual. But I also want to say more than that. What's most, uh, to my mind, um, strange or, or what, what's, what really gives us this notion that something different is, on the one hand, the fact that we're lacking a Rosh Hashanah and a Yom Kippur. Uh, the, 
first day of the seventh month and the, the tenth day of the seventh month, which are usually meant to be extremely substantial uh, holidays in the Jewish cycle of holidays. Um, I want to be fair and say again that some commentators say, you know, that doesn't mean that they were lacking. The fact that they're not written explicitly just means that, you know, such kind of holidays must have taken place. There was nothing specific to say about them. Okay, that could be the case. As I said before, it's not my personal opinion. Um, but I do think that it has to do again with the fact that the people really are not invited. And what we really see instead of holidays that really used to be uh, in the first temple and also the rabbinic texts in the second temple, a lot about all the Israelites coming to the temple, we don't really see that anymore. And it has to do again with the fact that if you don't want anyone to uh, uh, make this temple impure, then you really have to make sure there's no reason to uh, come in masses to the temple. What is interesting is he adds another, I would say, it's not exactly holiday, it's more like a ritual on the first day of the first month, the first day of Nisan, and then on the 14th day. And it's um, a ritual that's basically meant to be like a cleaning day or a preparation day, purifying day um, before Passover. Now here also, some of the commentators say this is not a regular ritual. This is not a first month temple ritual like I'm um, describing it. This is more a ceremony that's, you know, the first time that the temple was opened, this is how they opened it. But I think if you read carefully the verses, you'll actually see that this was uh, a regular ritual that happened on the first day of the first month. And I think that it has to do with the fact that it was, he was really very, very clear about having to make sure everything's very pure. So that's why we get a new ritual that's all about purifying the temple. Now, I want to say more than that. I want to say that it also has to do with the uh, what was regulated in these days of the month in the Babylonian context, because there are two things that are similar here. First of all, the timing, there was a known festival uh, called the Akitu festival that used to happen in the first uh, month and the seventh month uh, in parallel times. And there were, it included many demonstrations in the streets and it was very popular and people well recognized it. So I think here too, Ezekiel may be responding to known customs that maybe part of the Judeans in exile started watching, participating, corresponding with. So he's giving the Jewish alternative to these dates. And I'll say more than that, that in the Kitu festival, uh, there was a lot to do with opening and closing the temple gate. Um, and part of what we see in Ezekiel, uh, surprisingly, touches on the same kind of elements, meaning the uh, Nabunadis, uh, which was really, uh, you know, the Babylonian describing him, would describe uh, door, doors, posts, and locks, and vaults, and, you know, different aspects of the temples, and how they were opened and closed, and what exactly were done with them. 
And it's interesting that Ezekiel also all of a sudden touches on all these details that in different contexts, we might have thought that they were totally irrelevant. But bottom line, there's a common denominator, which is in both places, there's a God who moved from an area that was profane or that was, uh, that didn't enable him to be there in a proper manner into an area now made sacred by his presence. And the purifying of a temple on the first day of the seventh month, uh, I think is the biblical, you can say response or correspondence or context um, to understand the way that Ezekiel really interacted with his Babylonian surroundings and was also another way to really see that he was familiar with his Babylonian surroundings. And he really felt that there had to been kind of a respond to what people saw in the culture around them. So I would say that on the one hand, he really charts an individual path, but uh, on the other hand, he really, his individual path is really contextualized. And that's why I call the book uh, Ezekiel's Visionary Temple in Babylonian Context, because I really felt that that's, that's the new point I'm trying to make, that even when you want to chart an individual path, even when you have your own um, priorities, and in Ezekiel's uh, prophecies, it's very obvious, the overriding concern, concern with preserving the sanctity, the holiness, the purity of the future temple, even that is um, said in terms and in correspondence taking into consideration the Babylonian context. Um, I'll say that uh, I really tried to to end the book with um, when I was thinking of really the exile's effect on the people who were exiled to Babylonia and their uh, worldview, their theological view, the way that they were trying to understand the fact that they were exiled from their homeland and what that meant and asking themselves, will they come back? And I think that if we try to put ourselves in their place and we try to think what a prophet would have to address living among them, what kind of questions would uh, be at stake, then I think then understanding that really helps us uh, articulate why Ezekiel emphasizes this driving theological force um, and this intense desire to safeguard the sanctity of the future temple. Um, And I think that way he's really corresponding to the exiles, uh, maybe debates or maybe a hesitance with the question of, will there be another temple Uh, How should we understand the first temple's fate? Um, You know, what would be the end of this or where will this bring us? Um, And when when you see the way he replies to these questions and he addresses what what's at stake, I'll say that really understanding the driving theological force uh, of the book of Ezekiel, where he really wants to be a safeguard and make sure that 
the sanctity of the future temple, its holiness, its purity um, will be kept forever. And in that way, I think he's really trying to respond to what the exiles may have been wondering about. How are they going to make sure that the fate of the first temple uh, won't actually repeat itself uh, in any future temple they may build? So I would say in a nutshell, or to sum up, that when we, example, when we examine um, this visionary temple against the backdrop of the Babylonia and the Judeans, meaning if we take into consideration what we know today, which is pretty much about the Babylonian culture and about the Judeans and where they were exiled to, and we understand that they lived also in rural, rural but also in urban communities and how they interacted with, um, I think, not only the Babylonian people and the Babylonian uh, industry, if you can call an industry to farms and to, you know, agriculture, but also with the rituals and the way the temples looked and they saw the priests um, and they knew exactly what it looks like to have a, magnif a magnificent temple. Um, they really got a response from Ezekiel because on the one hand, he gives them a prophecy where he really departs in significant way in significant ways um, from the temples they see around them, but also from the first temple. And he really starts a new path. But in another, uh, but from another point of view, he really interacts with what has been the Jewish past, with what they see around them. So. On the one hand, it's like, I would say isolated, but on the other hand, it's extremely contextualized. And uh, I think that it's really an amazing response uh, what the people in Babylonia were probably wondering. It's a complex one. Uh, it can be looked at from different perspectives. It can be looked at from the current years where he was prophesizing and from reception history throughout different periods. Um, especially the time of the returnees when they were building the second temple. And this really helps us understand maybe part of their frustration. But uh, it's also another way of really understanding how Jews uh, interacted, not only with, I would say, day-to-day -day interactions that had to do with taxes and had to do with being ruled by other empires, but also interacted theologically, uh, trying to give a response to where, where they are, why they are unique, what makes their theological notion different, and what ways does it correspond with what, with what they see around them. I find it fascinating that the Essenes of Qumran in their temple scroll and other places clearly use Ezekiel's temple vision as the paradigm for the sort of temple city they would like to see Jerusalem become. What do you make of that? I think that's an excellent example of the fact that the Ezekiel's temple kept being an option on the table and actually an option to um, correspond with. Um, and if there's something we learn from it, it's how little they thought of the current temple that they saw in Jerusalem while writing these texts yearning for a totally different one. Tova, it's been a delight once more to speak with you about your work. All the best to you. Thank you. It's always a treat to be here. And I really hope that um, there's something that we can learn from the Judeans in exile 
is that even in a time that they really felt a big loss to their temple and their homeland, they still were grappling with the big questions with where is God? What will the future bring them? Um, you know, 2,500 years have passed. But I can say that I think if there's something I've taken, it's to continue grappling with big questions and really strive and hope to find an answer and not feel that they're beyond our reach, even if the responses we can come up with are only a fraction of a big picture, only if they give us one piece of the puzzle, um, it's still very important to strive there. And I think if the people who are these Judeans in exile, still mourning for their loss, could really demand some kind of response from the prophet within them, then it's for us also to continue demanding from ourselves, maybe, uh, some kind of responses. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.